0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Synergy Cast. I'm your host, Sonia Jaffer, and on this week's episode, I am so excited to introduce you all to Dr. Sobia Ansari and Dr. Monica Malouf, who join me for a conversation where we discuss how healthcare is a human right. We introduce the concept of Medicare for All and the issues that we see with our current healthcare system in the U.S. We also discuss how Medicare for All would benefit all aspects of health and well-being, including physical, mental, and reproductive health as well as how it would help us fight COVID-19. I want to put a content warning out there that we do discuss racism in the healthcare system as well as COVID-19 related deaths in this week's episode. So if that brings up some tough feelings and emotions for you, please utilize that self-care while listening. And it's okay to take breaks too if needed. If you want to check out this week's guests, you can do so on Twitter. Dr. Malouf's Twitter is at MaloufMD and Dr. Ansari's Twitter is at sobianaz 77 I also want to mention that we have a bunch of resources in the episode notes for you all, so please feel free, feel free to check them out if you want to learn more. I also wanna mention that we did record this episode a few months ago before the election. So you'll notice that we did mention that in this week's episode, but that's all for the intro. I hope you all enjoy listening and I'm gonna go ahead and play the conversation for you all now. So welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we have two very special guests joining us on Synergy Cast today. We have Dr. Sobia Ansari, who is a South Asian, first-generation American. She is a board-certified emergency physician and activist. She's also an emergency medicine doctor and has worked in various emergency rooms in the Chicago area. We also have Dr. Monica Malouf, who is a Middle Eastern, first-generation American. She is also an internal medicine doctor And she is also an assistant professor of medicine at Loyola Stritch School of Medicine. So thank you, both of you, so much for being here today. I'm so grateful that we get to have this very important conversation that I feel like has always been relevant, but I feel like recently with the events going on in the world, it might be even more relevant um, if that's possible. So thank you both for being here and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having us, Sonia. Yeah. Thanks so much, Sonia. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, of course. Um, so before we dive into our conversation for today, is there anything else that you all want to share about yourself to the listeners and also if you want to share what got you into medicine?
2: So I can go first. Um, this is uh, Dr. Monica Malouf speaking, um, but I, I've trained in a few different big cities across the US. I did medical Minneapolis and New York and I'm um, practicing outside of Chicago and I'm the first doctor in my family. I don't know that I. there's one thing that drew me into medicine. Um, I, um, I think there was sort of a series of different experiences I had growing up and through college, but I think ultimately my desire to help people and give back to communities is what cemented my desire to go into medicine. And I think that that has only been magnified and reemphasized as I practice primary care in a setting where um, we're seeing a record number of people who are uninsured, having trouble paying for their health care, having trouble accessing health care. So it just sort of re- has re-emphasized for me the last few years, like why I went into this and the power of being able to provide primary care to um, high-risk populations who um, really need um, a lot of good preventative medicine. And I think that kind of echoes the same reasons why i'm involved in the single-payer movement and the universal healthcare movement
1: yeah for me uh this is dr sobia ansari i grew up in a south asian family and um for all the south asians out there you'll probably understand this where There was a great deal of respect for the field of medicine and for physicians. It was, you know, the best career a person can aspire to. And so thankfully, I I really did like science. And being a Muslim American, there was this idea of like giving back to community and, um, you know, trying to do something good for society once you've benefited from it. These were principles that had been instilled in me by you know, my family, my parents. And so this was kind of a, a natural profession for me to fall into. And I really loved emergency medicine because it, you know, for me, it was like the, the, the doctor that could do everything, you know, see anything, do anything, um, you know, answer people's questions, see, you know, people who've just been born and, you know, people who are more mature and later on in their life stages. But what I was discovering after, you know, practicing for more than a decade now is that I couldn't separate biology and science from what was happening to people in their, you know, social situations in society, what we now refer to as the social determinants of health, that I couldn't really do my job effectively without... Addressing those issues. And one of the biggest social determinants of health in the United States is the lack of insurance or being underinsured, which is just not an issue in a lot of high income nations. And so, you know, I fell into this, and Dr. Malouf has been, you know, an activist for longer than I have. So it's been a privilege working with her. We've done some lectures, some meetings, and things like that together. So it's been great.
0: Yeah. Thank you both so much for sharing a little bit about yourself. I think it's always so interesting to hear like what brought people to where they're at right now, and like I think you both hit on some like really important points about how social justice issues cannot be separated from health issues. They're very interconnected, and I believe the same. Like uh, my program that I'm in right now for art therapy also hits on social justice and mental health and how they're interconnected. And then I also see physical health as very interconnected with mental health and all of the social justice issues too, that we are going to speak on today too. So it just brings me a lot of happiness to hear like physicians and the medical profession also speaking on these issues as well. So thank you all for sharing that.
1: Thank you. Yeah, thanks.
0: Yeah, of course. I think you both already shared a little bit about this, but if you have anything else to add, on what got you interested specifically in activism with access to healthcare and Medicare for All specifically.
1: I think Dr. Malouf would agree. Like doctors, we're kind of being an activist every single day in our, you know, working life. Uh, We're advocating for our patients, you know, trying to help them navigate a very complicated system. Um, And it's just really a very natural step to walk into a larger policy arena, you know, to try to then advocate for them in society. And so, uh, you know, I'll just say that every day I see somebody who tells me that they have some healthcare challenge that cannot be fixed with a a quick prescription or a CT scan you know it really means that I have to kind of use my voice as a physician who sees a lot of patients and hears a lot of stories um, and then take that to policymakers and people who make the rules and tell them hey this isn't working we need to fix something that's broken
2: yeah I 100% agree with dr. Ansari's sentiments I think it's it echoes I think uh, what a lot of doctors feel um, There isn't a day that goes by where costs, social determinants of health, social justice issues aren't manifesting themselves in the exam room with patients. And after seeing these things over and over again, I sort of like the the analogy of an overflowing faucet. Like a lot of times, what we're dealing with is there's an overflowing faucet that's pouring water onto the floor and we're mopping up the mess, right? We're in our clinic, we're in the ER, we're trying to put band-aids on things, mop up that mess on the floor. But the question is how do we turn off the faucet? How do we stop the problem upstream? And a lot of times as doctors, we don't have the time and space to think about those bigger issues. And so you do have to kind of step outside of your role as providing a, a person providing patient care to thinking, systemically, thinking socially, okay, like what can I do on a policy level, on an activist level, to make that change, to stop this upstream problem of from causing all these things that I'm seeing every day. That's kind of, I think, a natural transition for a lot of doctors involved in activism, and we're seeing it more and more with the younger generation of doctors, so I'm excited to see you know, my med students that I work with and residents, like all really involved in social justice and having these conversations. And I think the face of medicine is changing, which is exciting.
0: Yeah, that is, that is amazing to hear. Like, I just want to acknowledge that that is so, so true. Like being a a health professional, whether it is like physical health or mental health, we do also have to advocate for our clients and our patients and the people we work with because we do have that power and privilege of having a position as a health professional. And so that comes with it, like both of you spoke about. And I think that's a super important point to hit on. And so I'm really glad that both of you are like bringing that to the table. And especially as like women of color, I think that adds another element to it, too, being in that position of power as a health professional. And then also, you know, seeing how the the system and society impacts all people, but especially by POC as well in a systemic way. And I'm really glad that both of you like bring attention to that as well.
1: I think also as first generation, we recognize all of the things that have to be in place for us to be able to get where we are. You know, I recognize that, you know, the institutions that exist due to taxes that are being paid, um, you know, the safety that this country provides, the, like, incredible education and opportunities, they're there, but they're they're not there for everybody, right? And so it's, it's really important to try to, you know, you, you mentioned social justice, and that's I think what social justice is, is, you know, to make it so that everybody has these very important things that create a better society for everyone.
0: Yeah, exactly. And like, also, I think you both hit on this too. But a lot of times, the very reason why people need to seek out health resources, like whether it's mental health or physical health is because of systemic issues they are facing. Um, Like for the mental health aspect, I can speak on that. A lot of the time, like a lot of the reason why BIPOC need therapy is because of racism or systemic oppression that they've faced. So yeah, that's another layer onto why I think it's super important for us to recognize that. Mm
2: -hmm. Growing up in a society where you're systemically oppressed and every single day you have to like fight for your right to exist, fight for an education for your children, deal with gang violence in your communities, deal with police violence in your communities, Um, You know, deal with all these traumas of being able to access health care. Uh, We also know that um, uh, BIPOC communities and Black communities tend to live in areas with higher rates of pollution um, and things like that. So all of these things like compound and ultimately increase the level of stress in communities of color and Black communities. And I think that that collectively causes an increased incidence and not only mental health issues, but also physical health issues. Uh, Like Black uh, patients are more likely to have asthma because of, and people have correlated it to that higher incidence of air pollution in their communities and so many other variables like that that you see down the line Causing trickle down effects, so so many of those social justice, social determinants of health manifest, and not just mental health issues, but also physical health issues that we're seeing in our practices.
0: Definitely, yeah, it's not it's not black and white, you know. It's like looking at what's in the gray. So I'm really happy that that you brought attention to that for sure. And so I want to start off with a question, just like in general, what is a healthcare system supposed to do, and what do like because I know you both work very closely with people um, in the community. So what in general, from your experience, what do people want from their healthcare system?
2: I, I guess I'll start by answering the second question because it's easier on like, what do people want? I think what people want is be, to be able to see a doctor of their choice at, in a reasonable timeframe. Um, and then to be able to access like whatever that doctor recommends, <laughs> like testing, um, labs, scans, at a cost that isn't um, overwhelming to them. So I think it's basically boils down to I think people want access and a little bit of choice in that access.
1: I agree. And I think, you know, in addition to access and choice, um, you know, they want to not have to worry about an overwhelming or um, a cost that is, you know, beyond what they would be able to handle. Healthcare should be able to provide you care when you you know, really need it. And you shouldn't worry about um, losing your home or going bankrupt in the process of trying to stay healthy and being a functioning member of society.
2: Yeah, I can't tell you how many patients I refer to um, emergency care for a scan, and they say the first question is, How much is that going to cost me? And I think that people don't want to have that question, right? Like nobody wants when your doctor is telling you, I think you're having a heart attack, you need to go to the ER. The subsequent question shouldn't be, how much is that going to cost me? I think that that is a big, big issue in our cur- the way our current system operates. Um, and then to answer the question about like what a health system should do, I think that, you know, fundamentally, if you believe in, you know, the international human rights treaties, healthcare is a human right. And I think that a functioning healthcare system to provide equitable access to everybody, all basic health care and preventative service, regardless of their ability to pay. And a well-designed system should be able to do that.
0: It sounds like to me, just like not looking at human beings as like a price tag, just looking at them as the whole person. And that speaks to some of the points that we were bringing up earlier in the conversation too, looking at people with within their whole context of their situation and not even just their diagnosis but looking at you know where they're coming from what their cultural background is um. Maybe what trauma histories they have. You know, other societal factors as well. So, and that sounds really nice. Like that sounds like something a healthcare system is supposed to do. And uh, unfortunately, we don't see that in our country.
2: So, and Sonia, it's attainable. Like we're we're very unique in the entire world for the way our healthcare system operates. It's definitely attainable to create a system that is equitable and fair and provides holistic healthcare to everybody.
1: We're trying to be, you know, at the forefront and the most amazing country, you know, anywhere and trying to become great in every way. There's no country that looks at our healthcare system and says that that's what we want. You know, we we spend so much money and get so little out of it. Um, that that doesn't make any kind of fiscal sense, you know. If you ask anyone who's really looking at the input of dollars and the output of services and um, outcomes in healthcare, it's it's we're we're not in an enviable situation.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think that's that's a very important point to make. And so I think that leads us into our next question: is what is currently wrong with our system of healthcare in the U.S
2: what's right is probably the easier question to ask because there's so much there's so much that's wrong um so i think like to boil it down i will say that what's wrong is that the system is insanely complex expensive there's a lot of special interests insurance companies pharma lobbying groups so it's this huge expensive complex lots of special interests and then what we get for it for this you know this big beast of a system is sick Americans. Like we are not a healthy population. Our health, system, it's not working to provide the healthcare that it should be to the, to our the citizens of this country. Um, so that's kind of like a, a global, like what is wrong with our healthcare system. I think when you think about kind of boiling down to all the facts, there's so much that, you know, Dr. Ansari and I, when we do our talk, like community talks on this, there's just so many things to talk about um, really depends on Um, what you want to focus on, but costs, administrative issues, complexity, um, you know, lobbying interests, so
1: many issues. I mean, I think the complexity issue is a big one. You know, it's really hard to under, I mean, what we're talking about today is like health insurance and health insurance coverage, right? It's how we pay for healthcare. And we have a system that has so many different ways that we pay for healthcare. We have private insurance, right? That's usually we usually get private insurance through um, it's employer based, so through our, our jobs. Um, we have um, we have public systems like Medicaid and Medicare that you have to fall into a certain category to qualify for. Um, and then how we define who gets Medicaid it can be different from state to state. So if you move from one place to another, maybe you fit the category in one place, maybe you don't fit the category in another place. You know That happened when we expanded Medicaid after the Affordable Care Act. A lot of changes were, were made. Um, you know, people sometimes it can be covered by multiple plans also, and the plans can change regularly. They don't always give you a heads up. You know, about one seventh of businesses change their insurance plans plans every year. So you can be an employee and you don't really know if your insurance plan is going to be around next year. So that relationship you've established with the doctor who is, you know, in network for that plan, you just, you know, you don't know that you're going to continue this relationship. It's really, you don't really have that choice. You know, you're, you're just kind of stuck in the system hoping that it's going to work out for you. And it's hard to explain this sometimes, I think, you know, to to, to folks, it's, it's really, really complicated. And there's like systems, like our neighbors in Canada, that are definitely not this complicated. Pretty simple and straightforward.
0: Exactly, yeah, like I've seen those charts, like that compares how much money the US spends Uh, versus other countries and we spend so much more like drastically more than any other country and also I think you both hit on this point of like even though we're spending so much you would think that oh at least that's going to something but I think we're going to dive into a little bit later on in the conversation too about where that money goes but it sounds like from what both of you are sharing is like that money is not really even going to the right places in in the first place
2: Yeah, I think in the US on average per patient, we spend $10,500 a year. Most developed European nations, um, Australia, Canada, looking at like our sister nations are spending five to 6,000 on average. So we're spending almost double and 70% of our costs of our healthcare system. Like what are we spending those $10,000 on? 70% of that is going towards administrative burden. So what that means is paying the people that like keep this disastrous system running. So insurance employees, billing people, coding people, um, people at the hospital who do billing and then people at the insurance company who process that billing. Um, and then a lot of that money ultimately like trickle down also goes to lobbying in terms of pharma and these big companies. And so we're spending tons of money. So much of it is not going to like patient care. And so much of it is used to like prop up this system that's just so confusing and cumbersome to run.
0: I definitely see that, like the point, um, I think Dr. Ansari, you hit on this too, about like a lot of times you don't know that your insurance is going to change. And that has happened to my family and I so much. It just happened to me this past summer. I, I, I'm with my school's insurance and they completely switched our entire insurance carrier and did not let me know or anything. It was just kind of like a surprise, like, oop, now you're this, you know, and so I kind of just had to scrap up and be like, okay, I guess I got to figure all this out now, even though I don't know really what this means. Um, So I definitely, definitely see that in my own personal experience as well. And I think that like speaks to like taking autonomy away from individuals as well, like autonomy with their own health care in general. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, in that moment, did you feel like you had been given a choice?
0: Not at all. Nope.
1: (laughs) Right. And instead, you're spending your time scrambling to try to find, uh, you know, to see if that primary care doctor is still covered or, you know, if you need a new one, then it's, if you have to get a new one, you got to transfer your like paperwork over to the new one. Um, Sometimes there's a a lot of redundancy that results. That's also costly to the system. Whereas you could have just kept the same doctor the whole time. And this is a person you've established a relationship with, which I imagine is more important to you than like which health insurance you know, name, who's like, the who's, who is the person covering your health insurance costs? You just want to know who your doctor is, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah. And like, for me, it was like my doctor and also like my therapist, because I've been seeing my therapist for like two and a half years now. And so the immediate thought I had was like, am I going to have to, like, can I still see her?
1: Mm-hmm. And like,
0: I've built so much rapport and trust with this person. Do not want to start new with someone else unless I have no choice, you know? And like, Also, another question was the copay. Is that going to change? And unfortunately, like we were talking about before, like the finances are like so important for people. And I think that also speaks to why, like what is wrong with our current system as well.
2: Yeah. I think that people with good insurance like that insurance until they have to use it. And then they realize that, oh my gosh, like this could change year to year. The people in network could change every year. Oh my gosh, this year my ad bear is covered and next year it's not. And then all of a sudden they're like, okay, wait, this insurance plan that I thought I had that was so good actually, you know, was really restrictive and frustrating to deal with. And I'm see, I see that across the board every day. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to just correct something I said earlier, Sonia, I realized, I think I might've said that 70% of our healthcare costs go to admin. I, what I meant was that we spend 70% more on admin costs than like other healthcare systems. Um, I'm not sure if I said that right earlier, but um, suffice it to say, we spend a lot more of our healthcare dollars, again, like with that administrative burdens than other countries.
0: Yeah. Um, and so I think that leads us into our next question is, what is improved Medicare for all single payer reform? And why is it important to you? And why should people care about it?
2: So um, improved Medicare for all and single payer universal healthcare are all kind of like synonymous terms. Um, the phrase that we, we like to use is improved Medicare for all, because it's taking something that we know and understand, which is Medicare, improving it, fixing some of the issues with it, and then expanding it to everybody. So Medicare currently exists as a health insurance system where, um, it's a federal reimbursement system. So where, um, if you are over the age of 65 or if you have a disability or on dialysis, you qualify for Medicare, you go see your doctor, and then that doctor bills Medicare for your visit. And the vision is that we kind of expand that for for everybody, rather than having thousands of insurance plans in the United States, all with different formulas and copays and networks. We have one system, one big pool of money where everybody pays into that pool with their taxes. So instead of paying a health insurance company a monthly premium of three, two, three, four hundred dollars. You pay that money to Medicare and then through that you get a health insurance card and you go see any doctor you want, any clinic you want. There's no network because everybody's in network. You use the healthcare you need and then it gets billed to Medicare. So that's the vision for the system. And the reason we call it improved is because there's a few issues with Medicare the way it exists now. Like there's some coverage that isn't complete like vision and dental and long-term like nursing care needs and, and ideas to kind of expand on medicare's existing services improve them and then allow everybody to access it
0: dr Malaf, what you're saying it just sounds like it would it just sounds like organization like it just sounds like it would be so much more organized uh, from someone that doesn't know too much about the healthcare system that just sounds like so much more like easier to follow um, so it kind of makes you wonder why that's not already putting into place
2: yeah, I remember when I first joined the single-payer movement, I was in med school and uh, a local congressperson um, who'd been advocating for a state universal health care plan in Minnesota for like his whole career came and talked to us and he like explained it and I was like, wait, this is like so simple. And so it makes so much sense. Why aren't we doing this? And he's like, exactly. Like, that's the point. That's what we've been saying for decades. And Like It was that conversation that made me um, really delve into the numbers myself, make sure I understood. I was like, you know what? This just makes sense. It's easier, more streamlined. It makes sense for doctors and it makes sense for patients. So much of why doctors can't survive in private practice right now is because it's so complicated to figure out how to get paid for your services. If I go open a clinic in my neighborhood and I have patients on Humana and Aetna and United and Blue Cross and Medicare and Medicaid, and I need to figure out like every visit, like What's covered? What can I order? How am I going to get paid? It becomes so overwhelming. So these doctor's offices have to hire tons of administrative staff to just keep up with this whole billing complexity, as opposed to a system where you just open a clinic and then you just bill Medicare for everybody. So it would definitely encourage providers to go into private practice more, which is a good thing for a lot of rural communities and really important, and um, a lot of underserved communities as well. And for the patient side, the benefits are... Are incalculable as we kind of alluded to already with dealing with the complexities of our current system and the costs.
1: And it would be a system where, I mean, You know, everybody, first of all, everybody's covered under the same system and you could go anywhere in the country and, you know, get care. Frequently, I will see patients in the emergency department who are traveling through Illinois or visiting um, Chicago, Um, you know, we're we're a big famous city, we get a lot of tourists, and um, in the process of trying to provide them care. I'll often get the question, is my insurance going to cover this? And, you know, we have to hire people who then come into the room and then try to figure that out. Yes, no. Are we going to have to transfer this person to another institution? Are they going to have to go back home and cut their visits short? It's really kind of unnecessarily cumbersome and complex. And, I, I will say that it frequently gets in the way of the conversation about how to take care of this person's, you know, when they co- when you come to the emergency room, that's like the worst day of your like life at that moment, right? You're you really want to be focused on, you know, solving that medical problem feeling better, getting care, you know, not worrying about the fine print in the paperwork that you might have signed uh, with your health insurance policy. Because unforeseen things happen. Every emergency physician knows this. <laughs> unforeseen things will happen. You can't really account for everything when you sign up for your health insurance plan, right? The p- point of insurance coverage should be that it will cover you when you need it um, at any point. So... You know, it is a, it is a, it's a plan that you can take anywhere. You can see a doctor anywhere in the country.
0: Yeah, and I think that just adds to how much easier it would be for both medical professionals and patients to have a system that was so flexible in that way. Because we know, like, with life, like, change is a constant. Like, people always have to move around, shift around, and so to have a healthcare system that allows for that accessibility and flexibility, that makes sense. That definitely makes sense.
2: Yeah. And speaking of like flexibility and change in life, I think one of the things that always makes me frustrated is patients making big life decisions based on health insurance. So people will say, I'm not sure if I should leave this job that I hate and I'm, it makes me miserable and I want to leave this job. But if I leave, I need to make sure I have health care and that I could still see my doctors. I have one patient who is really wants to retire. She's in her late sixties, but her husband relies on her health insurance supplement to pay for his cancer treatment. And so she is like trying to figure out like how to manage her retirement and also still pay for her husband's healthcare and his cancer treatment. So like those types of decisions that families have to make right now are not decisions they should have to make, right? Like you shouldn't have to balance like your job and your ability to get cancer treatment. They shouldn't be on the same chopping block. So um, a system where people can just, Know they have access to a doctor. Know that that's secure. It's not going to be taken away. Is so pow- It's such a powerful thing.
1: Just I think about like all the people who could go back to school and you know learn a new skill that they really want to, or open up their own business and follow their dream, which is what this nation, this idea, this idea, this nation is built on. This idea of like following your dream and bettering yourself. Um, you know, creating opportunities. You know. St- you know, being independent and all these things, but then we tether people to uh, jobs that, you know, they don't flourish, they don't love because of, you know, health insurance and it, it seems counterintuitive and, and there's plenty of places that don't do that um, and their, their economies are, are doing really great, you know, and their people are happy for it.
0: Exactly. What I'm learning a lot from both of you is like, Medicare for All really focuses on what's important so that patients especially don't have to also take on that responsibility of yeah. having to navigate all this information that it's really not their their job to navigate that like that's why they pay for healthcare that's why they pay for services so that you know they don't have to take on that responsibility and also like they might not be fully informed about that because they didn't go to med school and stuff like that or they don't learn about the stuff every day so I think that just takes a big burden off of patients themselves to have to always, like, figure out and navigate this realm on their own, too.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely. And this isn't a new idea for the United States. The idea of having, um, like, a national health plan has come up you know, multiple times. And for one reason or another, it you know, and, and we can talk about those reasons. It's politics, it's, it's lobbying, um, it's propaganda, it's racism. It's been shot down. But it's, you know, it's been there in the background. And I think what's happening is slowly with generations, people are beginning to recognize the importance of health care access, um, affordability, and realizing that this really does need to be prioritized and not put to the side, which it has been previously in American history.
2: Yeah, I think that now we're reaching a tipping point because healthcare expenditures nationwide are skyrocketing and patients cannot afford it. And we're seeing bankruptcies, um, foreclosures. I think 70% of bankruptcies in the US are tied to healthcare related issues and costs. The funny thing that I, like I think that's sort of mind boggling is GoFundMe, like a huge percent of these GoFundMe campaigns. I can't remember the statistic off my head, but I think it's more than half are centered on healthcare, people trying to fundraise healthcare, crowdsource healthcare costs. So we're seeing this become more and more of a pressing crisis. And so I do think we're at a point where we really need to desperately rethink um, how we're doing things, Um, not to mention the growing number of uninsured. I think what this pandemic has taught us is, you know, it hasn't caused like new problems in our healthcare system, but it's magnified the problems that exist. So when we think of how employment, healthcare insurance is tied to employment, and then you have a situation like this pandemic where we have record unemployment, 30 million people applying for unemployment, that's 30 million people without healthcare. Um, without access to their doctors. And I've seen that play out. I've had patients call in my clinic every week. I lost my job. I was laid off because of the pandemic. I don't have health insurance. Can you give me enough medications until I can find a new job? I can't afford to come in for a visit. I'm seeing that play out regularly. So what the pandemic has done is really showed us that, you know, these deficiencies in our system, the way employment is tied to health insurance is so problematic. And one, you know, all it takes is one, unforeseen episode like this pandemic and the system is really straining and it's putting such a burden on patients in a time where they really should have the best access to health care, you know, especially during a pandemic.
1: I think recently I saw some data that showed that the average uh, premiums for a family of four is over $20,000. So how is a family that makes $50,000 annually supposed to um, afford that. With deductibles that can be over, you know, $6,000, it's it's incredibly unaffordable and, and, and wages are stagnating. Wages have not kept up with, you know, the rate of increase in premiums and deductibles. And employers are really kind of like offsetting a lot of the cost for health insurance on their employees. So, you know, people are putting more and more of their money into the system but not really getting the returns for it
0: yeah and dr Maloff, i think you hit on this point really well as well about like we have to acknowledge what's going on in the world like the world events like we mentioned that impacts people's health and well-being as well and with with the pandemic you know with the uprisings as well with the black lives matter movement all of that intersects with how people show up with their health care too. And so I really like how we're also acknowledging and hitting on that point. And it really sounds like this is something that's universal. Like this is something that affects everybody at a global scale. Um, And so I know we started speaking on some of this, but I also want to dive into some common misconceptions or controversies regarding Medicare for all. And how would you respond to somebody that has some of these uh, misconceptions? Like, I know there's like this big notion that, oh, it's like socialism. Is there options for me? Or like the government will just completely take over everything and I won't have any individual autonomy. What are some of your responses to some of the common misconceptions that are out there with Medicare for All specifically?
2: Yeah, I'll answer the question about like, you know, socialism, which is one that it's popular right now to demonize socialism. But I, what I say is that Medicare for All is only as socialist as Medicare tons of people got Medicare. We're just going to keep Medicare, make it bigger and better. And people don't think Medicare is socialist. And what we're really doing is we're not, the government is not going to be involved in healthcare. Um, There are systems where there's government managed healthcare systems, sort of like the, in the UK, the NHS, like doctors are employed by the government. It's a different system. It's not, not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is keeping our system and then just creating one big insurance company, which will be Medicare, and that insurance company will be managed by the government. But doctors will be hired by hospitals. Patients will be able to see, have tons of choice in who they see and what they access. And there will be no sort of imposition of the, um, the government in that clinical decision-making in, that, in the doctor's office. And so I think that fear of, of socialism is completely inflammatory, really and you know people love to you know it's so funny to hear trump you know talk about socialist health care and as if it's a bad thing when he got socialized medicine when he was admitted at walter reed that's a federally a government-run health facility with government-hired physicians and where lots of military people get health care and all of a sudden it's good enough for him but god forbid we give you know um you know socially funded health care to the rest of americans um doctor, I'm sorry, I think, you know, uh you're pretty good at answering some of the other other criticisms. I think like related to cost and um and healthcare rationing. I think those are some of the other big criticisms we hear a
1: lot. Yeah, this this is true. People do worry about like if everybody has suddenly can afford to get health care, um, are we going to have to ration it? Is it going to overwhelm the system? For example, um, you know, thankfully we have some examples where things worked out okay. I mean, you know, we suddenly put everybody over 65 years old on. Medicare back in 1965, before we had, you know, the internet and computers, we did it with pen and papers. And um, we were able to get, you know, all those folks in less than a year enrolled on Medicare, you know, following the appropriate rules. And it didn't overwhelm the system. You know, some people who had access to health insurance used it a little bit less and um, others use it a little bit more but we were able to provide the care that was uh, necessary at that point. Um, You know Canada was also able to enroll its population um, in a universal health care plan without being overwhelmed and we saw similar things where some people used less and some people used more and um, it worked out in the end. But we, you know, in terms of rationing care, we definitely already ration care right now, right? The people who have health insurance, you know, get to have it and then uh, get to access healthcare. And then people who don't have health insurance get put to the side. And unfortunately, these are often minorities and marginalized communities. As an ER doctor, I see the result of this, which is that people come when they're extremely sick. They come, you know, when they've missed their insulin and now they're in diabetic ketoacidosis, or they need an amputation. Um, they come, you know, when their hypertension has been uncontrolled for so long, now they need dialysis, or they need an intensive care unit admission. Whereas it would have just been better for the patients and uh, less costlier for the system if we had just provided them the, the preventative care that was necessary that Dr. Malouf can uh, provide, and so many of our colleagues that have worked so hard in the system. Um, and so it, you know, the rationing, you know, is kind of already happening. Um, but you know, with this, we can kind of really fix that problem.
0: The biggest one that I've heard, and I think Dr. sorry, you hit on this. I think this is like in specific to Canada, but I've heard this like, Oh, like if we, if we increase Medicare access for all, like, then we're gonna have longer wait times or like we won't be able to go access our doctor as easily. Um, So I'm glad that you hit on that point and said that, well, this is already happening in our country. And so it sounds like it wouldn't be like that.
1: So many people I talk to will come to the emergency room and say, you know, I needed to see X specialist, a GI doctor, a neurologist, but the appointment is three months away, six months away. We, you know, already have waiting lines. It's just it's for people who just don't, you know, have the best insurance. And you know, the thing in Canada is that they are able to provide necessary care when the patient needs it. They don't have a problem where people are, you know, developing these like acute situations because they couldn't get, you know, basic health care. And people they have a system that's been created for people who might have difficulty finding a doctor. Um, it's all you know, centralized and it's easy to use and it's just not complicated.
2: Yeah, I think the thing is um, we curr- the wait times in Canada, if you look at them, are also not completely insane. You know, for elective procedures, people are waiting two, three months. What we're seeing in the U.S. is people already have those waits imposed on them, either because of their insurance or because they're self-imposed wait times. Um, what I tell people a lot is like, how often have you put off a surgery, a procedure, a doctor's visit because you didn't really want to pay for it? We impose wait times on ourselves already. I mean, I have patients who are literally waiting to get knee replacements until they can save up, you know, the $10,000 copay. I have people who are not getting listed for transplants because they have to come up with, you know, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 until they will allow them to be listed for a transplant. So, you know, we have wait times imposed on our system already. We just don't consider them, you know, I don't know. We just don't kind of think about them the same way as we do when it comes to a universal healthcare system, which is which is wrong.
0: Yeah, definitely. Thank you both for breaking that down. That was like super helpful for me and also for listeners. I'm sure they can relate to that as well. Um, So now I kind of want to dive into the mental health aspect of things. Um, listeners know that I'm very big about speaking on mental health. And so how does Medicare for all impact mental health specifically? And I know that a lot of the, as a mental health professional or somebody that's going into that field for myself, I know that a a big reason why individuals don't seek out therapy is the insurance problem. Like that's one of the biggest reasons I've heard people say like, I cost too much or my insurance doesn't cover it. So What is something that, uh, what are some ways that you guys can see like Medicare for All impacting that as well?
1: It falls under the category of comprehensive care, that mental health care is health care, just like reproductive health care and, you know, a lot of other things or, you know, vision, dental, all of these things um, that can sometimes in our current system be put aside as like a, an add on if you want and can afford it in, you know, in this situation, it is considered part of comprehensive healthcare. And, you know, one of the examples that you provided Sonya, which was, you know, a change in your health insurance plan, and then suddenly potentially, a, you know, a change in who you could see that disruption in care would not occur right, in, in an improved Medicare for All system, um, there would be no disruption in, in who you would see. First of all, it would be covered and there would be no disruptions in who you would see. There would be no disruptions in your prescription coverage. So many people uh, will come into the emergency department because there is a gap in their ability to take their medications or they're rationing their medications. Um, and that makes it really difficult for them to manage their symptoms or feel well enough to be able to... To carry out their daily life. And we know that medications, especially in the you know, mental health diagnoses, these are meds you need to take every day to feel well um, and to be healthy. Um, you can't miss these medications. So these disruptions would not be an issue.
2: Yeah. Again, I think that like opening, I just, I agree completely. I think that like opening up access and affordability is a big barrier to mental health right now. On top of that we do have a mental health provider shortage but even if we address that shortage right now we're still dealing with a lot of patients who can't afford and can't access their their um, their doctors regularly Um, you know one thing we haven't really talked about is um, you know rural populations and what's happening in rural america right now if you're paying attention is there's hospital closures everywhere in the last few years four or five rural hospitals in illinois have closed creating what we call healthcare deserts, basically places where people have to travel more than an hour to see a doctor. And that's happening across the board. And that is especially the case with mental health. Um, You know, you have towns, entire regions of, you know, Southern Illinois where there's no psychiatrists. And in a system where we have Medicare for all, and it's actually financially feasible for mental health practitioners to be able to provide care to rural communities who often are underinsured or uninsured it's another way that it can open up access and also kind of stave off hospital and clinic closures in those communities.
1: And I think this this brings to the point that an improved Medicare for All system makes it so that every clinic and um, healthcare institution is not struggling to make a profit to be able to stay open. I mean, there are certain things that just don't make a lot of money in medicine, right? Preventative healthcare services, um, mental health services, you know, reproductive healthcare services, you know, the big money makers are, you know, big surgeries, orthopedics, you know, neurosurgery. Um, And Unfortunately, with the system being the way that it is right now, clinics and institutions prioritize those services, right? Those services are, are necessary. They're very important. America is great at delivering them. We have cutting edge technology and medicine for that. But it is kind of geared towards a smaller percentage of the population way more people need primary care, way more people need mental health care services at every single tier. I'm not just talking psychiatrists, I'm talking therapists, I'm talking like art therapy, you know, so many different categories. Way more people need physical therapists than an orthopedic surgeon to provide them like that incredible surgery. And it's amazing that we live in a country that has all these great specialists, and they're fantastic. And And, you know, we should, we should, you know, there, it's awesome that they can do what they do, but without changing it from a for-profit to a not-for-profit system, we're not going to be able to put the resources into these other buckets that people, you know, really need in their everyday, everyday lives.
0: Um, Also, I know, Dr. Ansari, you started talking a little bit about reproductive health as well. And also I've been seeing in the news a lot about reproductive health specifically. Uh, We've seen that in our own country with abortion rights. So how would Medicare for All impact reproductive health in specific as well?
1: I mean, it would cover it.
0: <laughs> it
1: would cover, it would cover, it, it considers reproductive health care, uh, health care. So that's family planning, um, that's uh, contraception, Contraception. Uh, that's abortion care, uh, that's, you know, maternity care, um, you know, all the things that fall under uh, that system. And um, I think this is important to include in any health care system. You know, America lauds itself as like, you know, a very family values, family oriented. Nation, and in order for us to have a health system that that mirrors that principle, right? I think I think in the end, every country creates its own system of healthcare, and it creates a system based on the principles that its nation lives by. Um, and so, you know, our principles are like liberty, freedom, all those things, and that's what we're trying to get at at the end of the day. And you know, family as like an important unit in American culture is definitely important, and. The way we mirror that in a system is we build a system so that it provides the resources to be able to have a family if you so choose or not, and you know pursue your career if that's it's, if that's what you want to do. So it covers those services is basically what it is. Um, you know, a big thing is um, we can talk about the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment, uh, which was passed in the 1970s, I think, and which basically prevents federal money from being used to pay for abortion coverage. So, you know, women on Medicaid uh, or who are employed by um, state federal agencies, they can't use their health insurance to cover uh, abortions. And abortions can cost, you know, several hundreds of dollars uh, depending on where you go for that. Um, and that can be a prohibitive. Cost. I mean, you know, we know that very few Americans have even, you know, some hundred of dollars in their savings to be able to use for, you know, an emergency. So being coming up with $750 or 600 something dollars for an abortion is is difficult. So um, the improved Medicare for all bills that are kind of out as proposals would do away with the Hyde Amendment, would allow you to use your health insurance under improved Medicare for all. To pay for an abortion if you need it
0: yeah that definitely is like I think Dr. and sorry what you spoke on that like barrier that a lot of people experience in America is like the autonomy over their own reproductive rights and whether they want to have their family or not or whether they're in a space currently to have to start that. Um, So, yeah, that just sounds like that just sounds amazing to me that this would be covered, that this is one less thing that a patient would have to worry about when they're trying to, you know, decide what they want for themselves in their future.
1: Absolutely. I mean, we know that, uh, you know, earlier abortions are safer. Uh, Abortions in general are safer than actually going through a pregnancy. And a lot of women delay getting an abortion because of the cost. And so while they're scrambling to get the money, you know, that delays their ability to, that delays the time in which they can get it. And it just, you know, makes it a little bit less safe later on. So it just makes sense to make it so that it is easier, you know, if you need it to get it. Mm-hmm.
2: And while we exist in a nation, hopefully we will continue to exist in a nation that values the reproductive freedom of women. I think that while we, while we, while that's cemented in our, you know, um, in our, as one of our civil rights, you have to acknowledge that that is a healthcare right. It's tied to healthcare. So it's ridiculous that like we would have this, you know, we have the right to abortion. It is related to healthcare. People should not be able to like deny funding for that. It should be considered as part of any of your other healthcare care. Um, and so having a system where we treat it as healthcare, which is what it is, um, pay for it as if it's healthcare, um, really opens up access and reproductive freedoms to women. It does hinge on being able to pass a legislation that it repeals the Hyde Amendment, though. So there is a, it is an uphill battle. I think that will be an uphill battle politically, but fundamentally activists for the universal Medicare for All movement um, stand by that being an essential um, healthcare right.
0: Exactly. Yeah, I I really like what both of you shared about how like, it sounds like Medicare for all is like really trying to go back to what America's like roots were what originally what like America put, you know, in the Constitution, like freedom for all, you know, but like, as we see over time in our country, and currently, that's not really the truth of the matter. So it sounds like Medicare for all is trying to go back to that and trying to like ask the question of, how can we actually have freedom for all? And so that's, and that in, involves, like, you know, like we were talking about reproductive rights as a right, like you mentioned, Dr. Malaf, like that is a right that everyone should be entitled to, especially in a country that claims that it can be. So I really like those points that you guys are hitting on to. Um, so I know we are also mentioning racism in the beginning of our conversation and how that impacts people's health and well-being. So how would Medicare for All address racism in medicine specifically?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think that, you know, the civil unrest of the past year has helped bring us a lot of attention to issues that we in medicine have known about for a long time, but have been unable to make meaningful change on, which is that there's significant disparities in medicine, and that there's a lot of social determinants of health that influence health outcomes. Um, so what I mean by that is there's health disparities. Um, you know, black women have the highest uh, maternal fatality rates, maternal uh, complication rates. Black men have the highest death rates from colon cancer. Um, black women have the highest mortality rates from breast cancer. So these are what we call health disparities. And then there's social determinants of health things in people's environments and their homes and their communities that are causing poor health outcomes down the line. And, I don't think Medicare for all fixes all of those things. But I think that one of the big things it addresses is access. Again, like a lot of um, people in communities that are uh, tend to be working communities where you're working, um, you know, uh, hourly wage jobs do not get healthcare through their job. So people who are, you know, our fast food workers, our retail workers, these people are not getting healthcare through their jobs. So then they either have to have make too little money to get Medicaid or try to find another insurance plan or they're uninsured. And so a lot of people end up being uninsured. And then when they get sick, when they need to see a doctor, they can't afford it. They don't go. Or, you know, when women start needing regular things like mammograms and colonoscopies and pap smears, if you don't have regular access to a doctor, you're missing out on those things that could pick up early problems. The same goes for men who need, you know, colonoscopies and prostate cancer conversations and things like that. And, and if you don't have access to a doctor who's going to inform you on that. And, you know, one of the biggest killers of black men in this country is actually heart disease, um, heart disease and hypertension. If you don't have access to a doctor who can help catch the high blood pressure early, put you on medications, tell you how to lower your blood pressure, that's going to go untreated until it's, it's too late and you end up in the ER with a stroke or a heart attack. So definitely those access issues are huge. And I think Medicare for All, in terms of improving racial outcomes in healthcare, um, can definitely, is a definitely a huge move in the right step. And we actually have really good evidence to back this up because it turns out when people get to 65 and they get on Medicare, Black patients actually outlive white patients. So if you give everybody health care, they, Black patients, do just as well, if not better, than white patients. And we also see that with dialysis patients because once you get on dialysis, you automatically get enrolled in Medicare. And all on patients with dialysis, Black patients do just as well as white patients because suddenly they have insurance, they have access, they're being monitored. So for a lot of the outcome disparities that we're seeing, I really do believe that creating better access and equitable access, which is what Medicare for All will do, Will help mitigate some of those disparities.
1: And we still, like Dr. Malouf said, there's a lot of things that we would need to work on on the side. Like we don't have enough people of color who are in the healthcare field. You know, we do not have enough what we refer to as underrepresented minorities who are physicians and the administrators and and you know all the important people who kind of like you know work healthcare field. Um, that's something that needs to be addressed, you know, separately. Kind of like the racial disparities, and um, there have definitely been, you know, stories about minorities being treated differently when it comes to certain chief complaints. For example, pain. You know, this is a separate issue that, for sure, improved Medicare for all won't fix. But giving everybody access to health care is going to solve a lot of a lot of you know a lot of problems the data from Medicare coverage gives us a lot, it gives us a lot, you know, and, and I kind of sort sometimes hear this rhetoric of, well, you know, they made bad decisions. They, you know, there's like lots of bad choices that were made. And that's why, you know, X, Y, and Z person ended up in the situation. People say that uh, certain groups of people die more from homicide and gun violence. But if you actually look at the data, it's lack of access to health care um, that's causing a lot of these disparities and shortening the life expectancy um, of folks. Uh, One thing that we have a graph of from Dr. David Ansell's book, The Death Gap, is a drop in life expectancy that occurs if you're taking the blue line from where we live, like Oak Park, River Forest, going towards the loop. And the life expectancy drops by more than 10 years. And you know, you're crossing the west side of Chicago, which is predominantly Latinx and um, Black communities. communities. And why is that? It's because they have poor access to healthcare amongst a lot of things, but that is a big, big factor.
0: Especially with the aspect of access and also with um, with with heart disease as well. And we know like with the ACEs study, adverse childhood experiences, That's that's another key component about how mental health and physical health and also like the context that the person lives in, the social context, all impacts health and well-being, too. Because we know that, like, if people have a higher score on their ACEs, which is like they have, a, they have more trauma that they've experienced ongoing throughout their lifetime, which happens to be people that come from marginalized communities, specifically black and brown individuals, then they're more likely to have heart disease, too. And they're more likely to have cancer. And they're more likely to have diabetes, as well. So I think that just like speaks on to everything that you both were talking about as well, too.
1: And I think it's important to also say that the way that the system is structured right now, where there's like private insurance and then there's Medicaid, um, there are stereotypes associated with the type of you know health insurance. I mean, I even heard it when the ACA was first rolled out, and people would be like, "Oh, you have Obamacare." I was like, "I don't. What does that mean?" You know, health insurance should just be health insurance—a way for you to pay for your for your medical care. Um, it should not assign value to you as a person in society. And I have had patients tell me that because they have Medicaid, they feel like. They are treated differently, and I I believe them. You know, the sum of it would be they feel like they are treated as less than human. I have grown men who cry in the emergency department when I see them because they just want to be treated with respect. And you know, I don't know how we got to a point where how you're covered by insurance signifies how hard you've worked or how hard you currently work or how good of a person you are or what kind of values you have or how valuable to society you are.
0: Yeah, that's a key point. I never even thought of that. Well, there's like a stigma even around like what insurance you have. But what about COVID? Like what about the pandemic? How would Medicare for all, because this is like, this is our new reality. This is our new normal. I definitely don't feel like this will you know, fully go away or even if it does, I think it will leave a lasting impact on our nation and on the whole world globally. So how would Medicare for all impact COVID and the global pandemic as well?
2: Yeah, like I was saying earlier, I think what this pandemic has done is highlight a lot of the, the issues, the problems with our current system. Um, I think in a system where we have a highly contagious, very potentially deadly virus, out in the community, when people get sick, you want them to be able to get tested to know that they need to quarantine and protect their families. And when people get sick and they can't breathe, you want them to be able to get access right away. I mean, we saw, you know, um, we see all the time that early access, early hospitalization, early intervention is so key in so many diseases and that we're learning, especially with COVID, you know, monitoring as soon as complications arrive, arise, being able to access healthcare is super important. So what we're seeing instead in America is that people can't afford tests. People can't, don't know where to get tests because they don't have primary care doctors or a doctor they can call and who can direct them to like that kind of uh, resource. And then when people are getting sick, they're, they're staying at home. Instead of saying, you know, I'm feeling worse, I should go into the ER, get checked out, you know, figure out if I need to be hospitalized. A lot of people are avoiding care because of cost, because they don't have insurance. Especially talking, this really uh, pigtails nicely off of the conversation about racism because the significant mortality gaps we're seeing in Black and Brown communities in America, and Black and Hispanic communities, where, um, and I think it boils down to a lot of that, is ac- early access to testing, early access to doctors and hospitalization when complications start and people don't have that, um, and people are dying. I mean, it is unimaginable that we have had over 220,000 Americans die from this virus. It is heartbreaking, and every death is a tragedy. And our healthcare system is, it should be robust enough to allow people to get care when they need it and when they're sick. Outside of our failed pandemic response, um, it should not be like a patient's inability to pay that ultimately leads to them dying from COVID.
1: Yeah, it definitely has underlined um, how broken and unable to respond you know, quickly. The system is, and so I echo a lot of what Dr. Um, Malou said, you know, initially they, I think they tried to put some bills or policies in place to be able to cover patients who had COVID. A lot of these policies were covering, provided coverage for, for getting the test, um, but not necessarily the treatment that you would need if you got very sick. So people were getting health care bills in the thousands because um, they need oxygen, they were uh, needed ventilators, um, they needed specialist care, um, some of these, you know, special medications that, you know, you may have heard President Trump mention. Um, these are very specialized medications that uh, are, are being used and, you know, they're expensive. So, um, and we don't really have a handle on—we haven't even talked about pharmaceutical costs, but um, you know, we don't really have a handle on that. So, so people were getting very large, prohibitive bills, and I actually recently got a letter from a, a patient saying that you know she, because of you know what's been going on, lost her job, and it but ended up needing to come to the hospital for some other reasons and can't pay her bills. So in addition to making it so that you have health coverage, regardless of whether or not you have a job, uh, we would definitely have a system that would be able to respond uh, quickly to an emergency that's taking place in the United States.
0: Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's so important and that's so crucial. And we see that with our country specifically. And also like, I want to acknowledge, we did have the presidential debate that happened a few days ago this week and that was very frustrating, you know, as a health professional um, specifically. It's frustrating for everyone. But um, I think that's even more frustrating to hear um, that the current administration does not acknowledge the urgency of the pandemic as well. And so, as a medical professional, I'm sure that was very frustrating for you both as well to hear.
2: I mean, it's heartbreaking, honestly. Like, I've had my patients die from COVID. I've seen families torn apart. I've seen families decimated. I have families where four or five people in a family have died from COVID and it's a tragedy and we're seeing it unfold every day. And we are, you know, I'm not as much on the front lines as Dr. Ansari is in primary care. I'm not seeing a ton of sick people, um, but I'm seeing, I'm seeing 20 patients a day and every day I feel like I'm putting myself at risk. I don't know who's going to walk in the door. I feel like I'm doing high risk work and taking care of Really vulnerable patients, and to feel so dismissed by our current administration is honestly heartbreaking. Um, And, you know, I I think that Biden, you know, to just comment on politics because we're talking about policy issues, he doesn't support Medicare for all, but he does believe that healthcare is a human right. So it gives me hope that we can take a step in the right direction and at least kind of push the needle forward. I don't love his healthcare plan, but at least he values that fundamental principle that healthcare is a human right and that we need to attack this pandemic more seriously um, and treat it, treat it as a serious national crisis. So
0: yeah, definitely. Yeah. And um, everything that you both have been sharing this whole episode, I'm just like thinking in my head, like, how can we learn more? How can we do more, especially for someone like me that doesn't know much about the subject. And I'm sure listeners can also relate. So If people are interested in learning and doing more for Medicare for all reform, what are some ways that you both suggest that people can get started with that?
1: There are some organizations that have fantastic information online for healthcare providers. Physicians for our National Health Program is an organization that Dr. Malouf and I are both members of. And there's a lot of great material uh, that can be found, you know, questions and answers and ways to get involved. Um, Locally, Illinois Single Pair Coalition, ISPC, uh, is another organization that has great information and you know a great like online presence. There's an organization called Hope Health Over Profit for Everyone is another one where you can find a lot of information um, about this. And you can also
2: just follow a lot of those organizations online and on social media to just stay up to date with a lot of the facts and the data coming out.
0: Yeah, thank you both for sharing that. I will link all of that in the episode notes as well. Um, So if listeners want to check that out, feel free to look into that. And lastly, I just want to ask you both if you have any concluding thoughts that you want to leave with the listeners before we wrap up our conversation.
2: I think for me as a doctor, it boils down to a simple question, which is, is healthcare a human right? And does everybody deserve to get healthcare, see a doctor? And not have to worry about the cost. And if you just if you believe that, then I pushing for Medicare for All is the answer. There are people who don't believe that, who don't think that everybody should get healthcare. They think that you should work and you should deserve health care. And I think that goes against human basic human rights philosophy. So I think that there is an answer. People have been pushed advocating for it for decades, but I think we're closer than ever and it will take more of a groundswell, more people being on board to make this a reality. So if you're interested and if you're at all intrigued by this, seek out some of those resources and and join the party.
1: Yeah, I would say, you know, there's, you know, people often ask like our doctors into this and, you know, I'm gonna say, you know, we we both are, educators as well, in in addition to being clinicians. And we see younger generations of physicians who don't think that cost should be an issue when they're trying to deliver care. So I'm really hopeful for the direction that at least, you know, folks in medicine are going in. And for you know, the general public, we go to school for a really long time and we do training for a really long time so that we can do this job. And really, I just want to show up to work and, you know, do the science and, um, you know, talk to my patients and be able to, to help them out. So, you know, this is just kind of like a barrier for us to do the, the right thing, basically to do our jobs, which is super important.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Thank you both for those concluding thoughts. And lastly, where can people find you if they want to look you up on social media? I know we also mentioned some websites and projects, but um, yeah, where can people find you best if they want to look you up?
2: Um I'm pretty active on Twitter. So if you're interested in learning more about Medicare for All, I do tweet about it a lot. You can follow me. My uh, handle is it's at Maloof uh, MD. And maybe Sandy, you can pop that into the notes for the podcast as well.
1: Definitely. Yep, I'm frequently tweeting. You know, I like to tweet about um reproductive health and universal health care. So you can find me on Twitter at Sobia Nas77.
0: Yep, and that'll be in the episode notes as well. So Feel free to look them up and show them some love. And uh, thank you both, Dr. Ansari and Dr. Malu, for sitting down and having this conversation with me today. I think it was very empowering and very important. And I just appreciate both of your insights that you all shared with us today. So thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks for having us. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much for creating the space to talk about this topic.
0: As always, I thank you for listening and staying tuned. If you like this episode, feel free to share it with the people in your life. I would also really appreciate if you would subscribe to Synergy Cast on whatever podcast platform you prefer. Give it a 5-star rating and leave a good review mentioning what you like about the podcast. You can also follow the Instagram for updates, at SynergyCast, and I have also included that in the episode notes. I have now a new feature, which is a voice memo feature, which I am very excited about. So if you would like to send in your thoughts and your feelings or your personal experiences, feel free to record a voice memo and send it my way. I would love to include your voice in the next podcast episodes. Lastly, if you are willing and able, there is another new feature where you can donate however much money you want to help support Synergy Cast financially. If you do choose to donate, the money would help me pay for several things. It would help me pay for myself, my own energies, my own efforts, and also the money would help pay my future guests especially people of color for their time since i believe it is very important to compensate people of color especially for their time and energy since many bipoc which stands for black indigenous and people of color have a history of being taken advantage of and underpaid or not paid at all for their efforts so any and always you choose to support would be very much appreciated Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more episodes coming your way soon. Stay safe, everyone, and take care.